This morning we'll be reading from Matthew 20. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. When he went out about nine o'clock, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you also go into the vineyard and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. When he went out again about noon and about three o'clock, he did the same. And about five o'clock, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why are you standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his manager, Call the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last, and then going to the first. When those hired about five o'clock came, each of them received a denarius. Now when the first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled against the landowner saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last the same as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first, and the first will be last. The word of the Lord. Please be seated, and please observe a brief moment of silence with us. Good morning, Highland. I tell people all the time that this church is my favorite thing about Abilene, and I 100% mean it. Uh, I don't know if you know what a good thing we have going here. I mean, it's really amazing. There's no perfect church, I know. Uh, But this is my family, 
And we have some really amazing people in this family. Uh, so I am grateful to share a word with you this morning. Uh, and my prayer is that our time together this morning will draw us deeper into the heart of God, uh, into deeper understanding of our Creator, and thereby deeper understanding of ourselves. Our text for this morning, which we just heard read, uh, comes from Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. And we are continuing this sermon series on parables, which are those enigmatic, symbolic stories that Jesus shares with his followers uh, that aim to reveal something of the kingdom of heaven. I really appreciated how Leah described the task of preaching a parable last week, uh, that it's something like trying to explain a joke, which you should never do because it ruins the joke. Uh, it kind of ruins the parable to offer this like extraneous commentary on it. And yet, what a gift it is that we have these parables recorded in our scriptures and that we can return to them again and again and continue to ruminate over their meaning. So this morning, we return to this parable about the workers in the vineyard, and I think it will speak to us anew. So some of you might know that last summer I completed my PhD, which was very exciting for me, uh, but what you might not know is that this was a relatively unimpressive feat in my family, uh, because I was actually like the fourth person in my nuclear family to earn a doctorate. And so by the time I finished my degree, I basically got like a hearty pat on the back and a big thumbs up. <laughs> I'm kidding. My family did celebrate. They were great. But um, I have had a lot of people ask me over the years, what happened in your family to make you all like this? Uh, which is a fair question. There's like a certain kind of neurosis that's required for somebody to think, yeah, I think I'll go get a PhD. So it's a reasonable question. What happened? Um, something might have gone off the rails. But what I tell people is this. My mom made learning feel like a privilege. She made it feel indulgent and fun. Uh, and here's how she did it. Uh, so we were little kids. I have a whole gaggle of older brothers, and we were little kids. Um, I was barely beginning to read full sentences when my mom developed what she called reading hour. This was scheduled, structured time for mandatory reading. Uh, but she knew that she could get us to do anything if she put the right spin on it. Uh, and so this was undoubtedly like a summertime innovation for her. The house was chaos. She was on the brink of losing her mind when genius struck. She rounded us up and she said, okay, kids, we are going to spend the next hour reading silently. And of course, we all start to grumble. And she says, but since you have been so good today, I will let you read anywhere on the property that you want, anywhere. You know, and suddenly it feels like, you know, very exciting. And in hindsight, I realized we were actually free to read anywhere on the property at all times. Um, but because of her marketing, reading felt like an adventure, like it felt like a reward. So at her word, we immediately scramble searching for the best places on the property to go read. Uh, and for some weird reason that I still do not understand, we all determined that the most coveted reading spot in the house was the bathtub. Not with water, not like a bubble bath, just an empty bathtub. And so my oldest brother dives in. He fills it with a plush blanket and pillows. Uh, he's got like a lion witch in the wardrobe in hand, and he dives in. And we all are immediately filled with envy. 
Uh, and so one brother finally like resigns to reading under a bed with a flashlight and like one climbs up in a tree to read. Um, but we all had our sights set on the tub for the next time. So then the next time when my mom announces reading hour, we race to the tub. We already had our pillows and blankets in hand. This time, my next oldest brother dives in first just as the third oldest throws his book into the tub as if to lay claim to it. And you can imagine the clamor and the predictable lament, but mom, I was here first, right? So tears were shed. Uh, the tub was deemed officially off limits for a time. Nobody won, all for reading hour. In truth, we would have drawn blood for the best reading nook in that house, and I am convinced that this is why we got our PhDs. So I laugh about it now. It seems absurd, but I think the most absurd piece of the story is actually that, that claim, well, I got here first, as if getting there first made it yours. It's like, well, no, this is not your bathtub. This isn't even your house. You're seven years old. This house belongs to your parents. <laughs> and the appeal has to be made to mom because it's her house and her tub. So she allowed us to play in the illusion that we could lay claim to it, and it was all in good fun for the cultivation of a love for reading. And it's pretty harmless. But that childish game, that childish mentality, it has a lethal counterpart in the adult world. The idea of who got here first, the idea that we could earn or deserve our places at the table, that we earn or deserve preferential treatment, or the idea that whoever arrived first, whoever has put in the most time or work or effort, gets to set the terms for everyone else. It may seem like I'm describing something most natural, like, well, yes, Amy, this is just the way that the world works. And it is just that. It is the way of the world. In fact, for most of human history, humans have competed, battled, oppressed, even enslaved and slaughtered one another, all to lay claim to what they believed they deserved. There's this little voice always chirping away in our brains. That's mine. I deserve it. I am justified in taking it. I should demand it. And it happens in small ways, right? Like, like taking that parking spot when somebody else had their blinker on first, but you're like, I'm in a hurry. I'm important today. Or it's even in silly ways, like thinking that like the seat that you sit in on Sunday mornings is your seat. <laughs> well, how did it become your seat? Well, you've just sat there forever, so I guess it's yours, right? Or maybe it's in bigger things, like, like the moment that you felt entitled to that promotion at work. You'd been working very hard for it. And then someone beat you out for it. And you feel disenfranchised, like someone stole it out from under you. Surely they didn't deserve it the way that you did. We are an entitled species. We ascribe value and worth insofar as we feel people deserve value and worth. And in this parable, money comes up, right? You have a landowner who's paying workers. And what I want to share this morning uh, is about a bigger picture, but it includes money. Money is just symbolic of the worth that we ascribe, right? Are you tracking with me? Money is symbolic of the value that we ascribe. Uh, so to speak of like a cultural economy, 
and I'm going to be using that word today, economy, I want you to think beyond money and uh, to see it as something about the appropriation and trafficking of value and worth in all of its manifestations. And this economy that surrounds us thrives on the idea that people must earn their worth and all of the manifestations of worth, like wealth and belonging and power. And truth be told, we hold ourselves to that same ruthless metric. It has become the basis not only for how we see those around us, but also how we see ourselves. What am I worth? What do I deserve? I think about the fact that we are currently, right this moment, carrying out our lives on the historic territory of the Lipan Apache, Numunu, or the Kanji, Kickapoo, and Umanos indigenous tribes. It was a grand, structured, well-resourced narrative of merit that violently forced indigenous people from their homelands in North America. You might remember learning about manifest destiny in school when you were young. The idea, the 19th century idea, that white American settlers were ordained by God to conquer peoples and settle the territory. So with God in your pocket, I mean, you deserve the whole world, right? By any means. This narrative, this worldview, it's a kind of economy of value or worth. And in this worldly economy, worth is seized upon by the diligent, by the ordained, by the ones who claim it. And you fight for your keep in this world. And, and this way of being is as natural to us as breathing. I don't think we really know another way of being. If you want to get ahead in this world, you show up and do the work, and then you deserve it. And maybe you're like, well, I mean, I don't think it's okay to, like, kill people for worth or property or whatever. Don't blow it out of proportion, Amy. Uh, okay, sure. So maybe you would not have colonized a whole country with manifest destiny in hand. But I'm guessing there is something of great value that you would sacrifice in order to feel your worth. Maybe it's your time or your family, or your marriage, or others in your community. Maybe it's your well-being, or someone else's well-being. Or maybe it's your very soul. I'm guessing Jesus would not have warned us about gaining the whole world at the expense of our souls if it wasn't a real and pervasive threat. And I'm also guessing that Jesus would not have taught us this very challenging parable about the workers in the vineyard if the mentality of the workers was not relevant and prevalent. What I think is most difficult about the parables of Jesus is how they clash with what feels most natural or intuitive to us. So here in Matthew 20, Jesus lays out a familiar scene, a workday, a standard workday. And like there are other parables that feel less relatable to me, right? Like, like the pearl merchant. I don't know the first thing about going and finding precious pearls, right? Uh, I don't know what that parable is about, if I'm being totally honest with you. Maybe lots of things. But this one's pretty transparent. Like it's very relatable. It's a standard work day. Putting in a day's work is familiar. And we all know that you have to work for your keep. And we've all been brought up in this curriculum of worldly economies that if you want a slice of the pie, you have to put in the time and the effort. Those who work more should get more. This is, in fact, the way that the world works. But the problem, 
Jesus is always presenting a problem for us. The enigma introduced by this parable is that this is not the way of the kingdom. In fact, the kingdom seems to operate on a wholly different kind of economy. In the kingdom economy, it turns out you don't deserve more if you arrive first. You don't uh, receive preferential treatment for doing more work. You can't earn more of the kingdom. And the person who you thought did the bare minimum or showed up late or should not have been invited at all, well, they receive an equal share. I recently heard about a church up in the Midwest that's been going through some changes. I have a friend who works there, and the church had picked up this language of growing young. We've even used some of that language here, growing young, and that is wanting to create a hospitable environment for younger people to grow their faith and to become involved in the church. So this church had taken up several initiatives towards this goal. Uh, They had started to reconsider their curriculum, their worship style, the kinds of community building events that they might offer. But there were those in the church who really struggled with those changes. Uh, And I'm sympathetic to this. I think in some ways they felt like the train left the station without them. Um, And so they began to grumble about the changes and, and they challenged those changes on this premise. They said, well, we built this church. We've invested the most time and money in this church. So we should have the first and most important say in what we do. I mean, by that logic, the church will actually never become a place for young people. You understand that because younger generations, by virtue of the principles of time, uh, will always be younger than the older people, right? (laughs) There's always a younger generation and they're not old until the time has passed and then they're the older generation, right? They'll never have put in the same amount of time or money or effort in building the church as those who are older than them. So if it's all about who deserves to set the terms... Well, done deal. Sorry, kids. Come back and call the shots when you've put in the time and the money. Or the mission of God, I guess, will will welcome you when you've earned your stripes. Last year, I had a student, uh, I teach at ACU, and I had a student pop into my office about once a month with questions that had come up during class. Uh, And towards the end of the school year, he dropped by my office, sat down, and told me he had one more question that was really bothering him. So I'm like, okay, lay it on me. He said, okay, in class, you told us that it is important to give to the poor. Now, mind you, he had sat in my class for the Gospels. uh, He had sat in my class that's over Acts of Revelation. So yeah, this had come up quite a bit. He said, uh, you told us it's important to give to the poor. Yes. He said, well, how do you do that? And I said, well, uh, it can happen in a lot of different ways. Um, And people who take this seriously are finding lots of faithful ways to respond to that call. I said, but honestly, at the most practical level for me, what this means is when somebody asks of me and and I have the means to give, I, I give. And he was like, like anybody could just ask of you. Yeah. So the person who, like, you know, walks up to you off the sidewalk. Yeah. (laughs) He looks at me, he sits back in his chair, and he goes, no offense, but that is so dumb. (laughs) 
I love this about college students. They keep you on your toes. Uh, and so I'm tickled, and I said, well, what's dumb about it? And he said, come on. He was like, you can't be naive. You know that they're going to spend money on things they shouldn't. And I was like, oh, we know that? And he rolls his eyes. It's like the eye roll of the century. And he's like, come on. And so I'm like, okay, okay. Yes, I know that technically, if I give money to somebody who asks of it, um, they, they might spend it on something that I don't approve of. Yes, that could happen. And he's staring at me. And he said, I'm sorry, I just think it's so stupid. And I said, yeah. And he said, why do you do it? And I said, well, because Jesus said to give to those who ask of me and to not expect anything in return. And he said, I'm sorry, it just doesn't work with my worldview. I said, well, what's your worldview? And he said, well, I was raised to believe that people need to work for what they get. He said, this this just doesn't like vibe with my politics. I'm like, okay. So then we're sitting there silently, and he's looking at me like, maybe I hold the secret key, like I'm going to fix this for him. And we're sitting there, and finally I said, you know I can't fix this, right? And he said, well, you and I don't, we disagree on so many things, I thought maybe you'd argue with me. And I said, I'm in the same boat as you. We're swimming in the same water. Jesus runs counter to everything that we've agreed to in our society, just about. I'm in the same boat. It's hard. So many teachings from Jesus about things like worth, value, work, money, run directly counter to the things that we have accepted as status quo in our society. And someone might be tempted to say something like, well, all of Jesus' teachings on money and generosity were just figurative. Oh, that's convenient. Like, and maybe like when Jesus is feeding the masses, surprise, it's not real bread. I can't believe it's not bread, right? (laughs) Or like healing the sick. It's spiritual healing, not real healing, physical healing. Or someone might say, well, Jesus and all of his teachings about wealth and money and work was really only addressing his cultural context. He wasn't speaking to us. And we're in different circumstances. And actually, what Jesus really needs is for our very best uh, economists to sit down with him and say, hey, Jesus, um, actually, this is how things work here for us. And Jesus then is going to kick back and go, oh, yeah, that makes a lot more sense. Thank you for explaining it to me, how this world of yours actually works. Carry on with business as usual. I mean, if it sounds ridiculous, that's because it is. It's something like saying, well, maybe the art professor or the art appraiser should go sit down with Vincent van Gogh and tell him what his paintings mean or what they're worth. Uh, Or Michelangelo, go tell Michelangelo what the Statue of David is all about and what it's worth. Something tells me that van Gogh and Michelangelo don't actually need an expert to sit down with them and tell them what their work is all about. So maybe we don't need to have a sit down with the God of the universe to say, hey, God, this is how creation works, and this is the worth of human beings, and this is how we handle our resources. It's a system we designed, but we find that it actually works much better than whatever Jesus was talking about. I'm really not trying to step on anyone's toes here. I'm, again, I'm, I'm in the same boat. I'm just trying to draw us into the perspective of the parable. 
because I don't think we know better than the God of the universe. God knows the value of God's world better than we do. So when Jesus confronts us about where and how we ascribe worth, we should probably pay attention. You see, it's not that God doesn't value work. It's that work isn't what gives people value. And I'm going to say that again. It's not that God doesn't value work. It's that work isn't what determines a person's value. The worldly economy addressed by this parable is pervasive, touching everything from our finances to our social interactions to the way we even see ourselves. We become dependent on the narrative that we can earn our worth. It is the only way many of us really know how to manage our self-esteems. I mean, I don't know about you, but I struggle to like myself when I'm not producing, when I'm not seeing results, when I'm not putting in the time and reaping the benefits. And I can't imagine that I would be worth much without my job or without my projects or the affirmation of my community. So how can it be that my work matters so much less to God? How can it be that the amount of work that I put in literally has no impact on the amount of kingdom I receive? How can it be that my own value cannot be measured by another person's insufficiency? We are poor in spirit. We have sold off pieces of our souls to this voracious worldly economy, and it has picked us down to the bone. The longer we play by the terms of this world, the more it enslaves us to its losing game. And the losing game is this. You actually never arrive. It's never enough. If your worth is bound up in what you can produce or how much uh, time and energy you can give, it will never actually be enough. And worse, as we age, our bodies become less and less productive in the worldly sense. So then what are we left with in the end? Nothing. We would gain the whole world and utterly lose ourselves. But this is why this parable is such good news, if we will receive it. Because Jesus is offering something better, something lasting, something life-giving. The economy of the kingdom of heaven subverts all worldly economies on this simple basis. Everything belongs to God. And God is profoundly generous. You need not prove yourself. You need not work yourself to the bone, fight for more resources, fight for prestige and honor. God simply invites you to be a part of it to get out into the vineyard and join this good work. You don't need to worry about who showed up first or last, and you don't even need to bother yourself with who's been invited. God chooses. God chooses. That word comes up twice in our text. The landowner says, I choose to give to this last the same as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? God chooses. And God is generous. So I was talking on the phone with my dad about this passage. My dad is also a preacher. Um, he might be watching this. Hi, Dad. Um, and my dad made this observation. He said, you know, it wasn't very shrewd of the landowner to pay the last first. It wasn't smart. 
Uh, He could have paid the first comers first, and then they would have left, and they would have never known that the late comers got paid the same amount. Like, they could have avoided all this drama, all the discontent, right? And I thought aloud, maybe that's the point. Maybe the first need to see it happen. They will only be disillusioned if they are forced to see the generosity of the landowner. And I believe it is an act of mercy, this disillusionment. It's a lifeline. You see, the landowner didn't deprive anybody of their wages. The landowner didn't deprive the first of their daily wages. They received the generosity of the landowner too. But they are deprived of the narrative that they deserve more than another. That has to go away. This parable all at once sets free the first comers from the burden of greed and an economically dependent sense of self-worth and spares the life of the latecomer, the one whom society deemed unproductive or worthless or not deserving of inclusion and care. God's generosity flows from an inexhaustible economy of love and grace. And it is a love and grace that saves us all if we will receive it. In this parable, we are reminded that everything belongs to God, and it is God who, with deep generosity, chooses to bestow an equal measure upon all. God's choice begets a choice for us. Do we really desire it to be on earth as it is in heaven? Would we choose the inexhaustible economy of God's love and grace, or would we cling to the pervasive ways of this world instead? The last will be first, and the first will be last, and all will receive equally from the generous God in whom we find our worth and our purpose. Amen.